Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast. Figured I'd open it up today with some bazooki music. Last week was dulcimer. We're working our way through the double course acoustic instruments. Welcome to episode 59. Appreciate you guys listening. I'll tell a story about that bazooki later in the show. And as I said, last week was a dulcimer and I forgot to tell the story. You know, I I pulled it out because of Joni Mitchell, but one of my favorite dulcimer players is none other than Cindy Lauper, who I've worked with many times and uh, consider her crew kind of family. And we were doing the Tony Awards a few years back. She was nominated for Kinky Boots, you know, the musical that she came up with and a lot of wonderful performers had a part of. And she was going to perform on that year of the Tony Awards like time after time or something. And we were backstage right before she was about to go on on the commercial break. And she noticed that the, her dulcimer was out of tune and she started kind of freaking out and it was too noisy to tune it up by ear. And I was like, I got it. And I pulled out my iPhone and used my trusty little guitar chromatic tuner and tuned it up for her literally like a second before the curtain opened. I'm sitting on this kind of float, you know, set piece, <laughs> tuning a dulcimer at the Tony Awards. So you never know where showbiz will take you. And uh, it's always a good time. But anyway, welcome to the show. It's been another crazy week. I know I say that every week, but let's get into what happened. And first of all, I hope everybody had a wonderful Easter and Passover and Ramadan. You know, it was a big holiday for three major religions. And it's a weird time to celebrate a holiday, you know, with what's going on in Ukraine, with what's going on in this country, with the epidemic of mass shootings. There was two or three of them over the weekend, which is just insane. And it doesn't happen anywhere else, you know, and one of the suspects in the shooting in South Carolina is already out on bail, like he's on house arrest. Ten people were shot in Pittsburgh, two Young people died, you know, a big crowded party of kids. Somebody opened fire. There was like 90 shots. You know, it's an epidemic of mass shooting and we've become numb to it. And not only are we numb to it, we have another party that sort of like is all in with allowing it to happen. And the Second Amendment has become a religion for them, you know, and they're the same people that were tweeting Christ is risen yesterday. (laughs) And they'd be the last people to support Christ if he were here today, because they want nothing to do with feeding the poor, you know, and helping minorities and helping people who are others. They want to punish them to exploit them for their own political gain. So it's a very cynical time. It's a very biblical time because all the, you know, all the things that any religion has ever warned us about are happening right now, you know, and a lot of it can be traced back to greed, right? Greed is what causes, you know, humans to exploit other humans and animals and stuff. You know, it's all about this sort of fear that you have to get yours right now and you have to keep the other guy from getting his. And that's a bad attitude, you know, and it's no way to run a country and it's, it's, it's no way to, to sort of like raise a people if you want to have any peace. And I think that's what we're all experiencing now. It's just the lack of peace out there. You know, you go to an event and it doesn't matter what part of the country you're in, it seems, you know, there's always that person now with the let's go Brandon t-shirt, you know, or you're walking down a main street and there's always that big pickup truck with the flags hanging out the back, you know, revving its engine and its giant, you know, 
muffler and stuff. And, you know, that's what Trump wanted. You know, he wanted you're either for him or against him. That was his Easter wish. You know, he didn't send a wish out to his what he calls fans. He sent it out to the maniacs who oppose him. Right. So you're either for him or against him. But either way, it's all about him. Right. And that's what happened. And, and you couldn't have given a bigger gift to a bigger narcissist than what this country did for Trump. And now the whole thing is designed to protect one man's ego. Right. The whole political movement on the GOP right now is just about appeasing Trump, trying to get Trump's blessing, you know, for the midterms and, and trying to say that you're part of the big lie. Right. Governor Kemp is running on that platform in Georgia as we speak. Or, and, and so is his opponent. Right. David Perdue is running against him, saying, like, I'm more pro MAGA than Brian Kemp, <laughs> you know, a guy who stole his election from Stacey Abrams when he was secretary of state of Georgia. He cheated to make himself governor, you know, and posed with assault rifles and his campaign ads blowing stuff up. But now that guy isn't pro-Trump enough because he didn't usurp the election to Trump's satisfaction. So now Trump has endorsed David Perdue, I believe. But my point in that is like you have to, you know, you have to not only suck up to Trump, you have to become part of this felonious lie, you know, this treasonous stance that the election was somehow unfair because one man can't let it go because that ego death to him is worth more than the health of a nation. So to have that institutionalized to the point that it is in our society, I don't think anyone's ever seen anything quite like this before. And, you know, I don't think it ends well, you know, and the only way to stop it is for the Justice Department to do something about it, right? And so far, they haven't, you know, they haven't answered the call for justice that many of us seek, you know, and I know they got their fans and a lot of people saying, slow down, it takes time. You don't have time. You have until the midterms and then it's going to be too late, right? Because even the first round of Trump sycophants and Trump sort of treason weasels that he brought in, the first round of grifters that had to leave his administration in, in, in disgrace, you know, guys like Scott Pruitt and Ryan Zinke, they're both running in this election. Scott Pruitt is running for Senate now, for Senator out of Oklahoma. He filed the other day. He wants to take James Inhofe's seat. You know, that guy was too much of a scammer for the Trump administration. Okay. Think about that for a minute. You know, he, he built a soundproof booth in his office so he could take calls from oil executives, you know, and get around environmental regulations and not get busted for it. He was buying mattresses from Trump Hotel. He was making staffers find his wife a high paying job in D.C., even though she didn't have any skills or qualifications. So when you come in and you grift too much for a guy whose religion is grifting, you know, you're a scumbag. But the cycle has lasted long enough that that guy's fresh again. He gets to run again because nobody held MAGA people accountable, right? There's no such thing as bad press in that world. Matt Gates is sitting on the Judiciary Committee, right? Here's a young man who's accused of like paying teenagers for sex with Venmo and doing drugs with them, and he's still sitting in Congress. There's no other time in our history that a guy who is tainted with a scandal like that would still hold office. No other time. And now it's like it's almost your bona fides. You almost need these scandals to show that you're really a true part of MAGA. Because to be a true part of MAGA and Trump, you have to sort of be above the law at this point. And that's dangerous because we didn't stop it. You know, Ryan Zinke is coming back, running for Congress out of Montana. Ryan Zinke, the interior secretary who showed up for his first day of work on a freaking horse. He rode a horse to the interior headquarters on Independence Avenue. I think they moved, but that's where they used to be. He rode a horse there. He made them hoist a special flag, like with his family coat of arms on the building when he was inside, as if he was the Queen of England or something, and you had to show when the monarch was in residence. That is bat, you know what, crazy, right? I'm trying not to curse.
these are the people that are coming back because they had to leave in scandal, right? Ryan Zinke is the guy who gave his college buddy the contract to rebuild the electrical grid in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. He gave the contract to rebuild it to his college roommate who started an electrical company in Montana with 12 employees called Whitefish Electric. This guy gets this multi-million dollar contract that he has no experience and couldn't execute and later, you know, lost because it was such a scandal, right? And people died because they were living in a, you know, tropical climate with no air conditioning and electricity for weeks and months on end, but they didn't care. It was just about grifting, right? So a guy like that normally would be out of public life for the rest of his life when you flame out that hard, but they all kind of hung back for a while saw that there was no real accountability, even for the guys that were planning January 6th up into this point. So they're like, screw it, let's run again. And this next election is gonna be all hands on deck for these guys. You know, it's death by a thousand cuts. That's what they're attempting to do to democracy. You know, they're just all in on this stuff. And, and you're gonna get overwhelmed. You know, this country will get overwhelmed. You can't handle 30 Lauren Boberts, right? We weren't designed to have Carrie Lakes as governors and Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkins and, you know, whoever wins in Georgia, right? Because those guys are going to throw the next election in 2024 to Trump. They're going to say, hey, no, we're not certifying those, you know, electoral votes. We demand a recount. We blah, blah, blah. You know, all the kind of malfeasance that they pulled this time will be refined, it will be much more effective, and it will be like a, sh a shotgun blast. It'll just be coming from multiple states all at once. And how are you going to stop it, right? You're going to send in the National Guard and stuff? No, because they're going to have their own army. That's what Trump's been doing. You know, that's what these guys are with these big pickup trucks and all their guns and their flags. He's building an army and raising a war chest amount of money. And he's allowed to walk free and do this week after week, trolling people, you know, having his surrogates like Ron DeSantis outdo his draconian measures, right? Having multiple states introduce anti-abortion legislation. There's 30 states that have some form of anti-abortion legislation right now. Six of them, it's illegal. And it seemed to happen overnight. Oklahoma. Two weeks ago, in the middle of the week, boom, abortion's illegal. Florida, last week, boom, after 15 weeks, abortion is illegal. No exception for rape or incest. You know, that's torture. That's, that's an assault on women. You're trying to torture them. You're going to tell a young girl or a woman that her, she has to carry her rapist baby to term, even if it's her father or family member that did it to her. That's disgusting. That's Game of Thrones type sadism. And that's what they're all doing because that's what the crowd wants. You know, it's, it's like watching an arena with gladiators, you know, and whoever can be the bigger prick and more disgusting and more, you know, violent in their rhetoric and their hatred for others, whether it's gays or Mexicans or liberals, whoever can cause more commotion gets more money that's why they're all tripping over themselves to be the next marjorie taylor green you know the governor of texas greg abbott tried his stunt last week where he stopped all the trucks coming across the border from mexico you know and he backed them up for miles for days on end right to hurt the economy on purpose so he could blame the price increases that are going to come from the lack of supply on the Democrats. Not to mention it was perishable food. You know, it was fruits and vegetables in these produce trucks that you're not only running energy to keep them idling there, you know, refrigerated using diesel fuel, destroying the planet to keep a you know, truck full of avocados ripe. They ended up all going bad anyway. $240 million of vegetables, fruit and vegetables, ruined. That's a sin. Not just because people are starving, which they are. You know, and I know Texas isn't big on vegetables, but the rest of us like that stuff. 
<laughs> you know? Think of the environmental impact. Think about how much water they use to grow that stuff down in Mexico. Think of how much labor. Think of how much machinery went into the cult of cultivation of that stuff, you know? And the industrialized agriculture aspect of it. And then you're just going to ruin it, right? For political spite. And he finally had to back down because the Texas Trucker Association was like, screw you, buddy. And then he quietly sort of reneged on his, you know, little stunt. The same week he sent a busload of immigrants to D.C. and dropped them off in front of Fox News headquarters for a political stunt, using human beings as pawns, putting them on a bus with no provisions, no food, no water, sending them from Texas to D.C., which in, its, in and of itself is a form of torture, <laughs> taking a bus that long. I took a Greyhound bus from Vail, Colorado to New York once in, the, in about 89, 90. And uh, I still remember it. I remember every mile. But anyway, it was also during the bus strike. So we had scab bus drivers that were getting lost. But anyway, uh, I digress. You know, that's what DeSantis did. They sent a busload of human beings to D.C. for a political stunt. And then they got to get off the bus, you know, on Constitution Avenue up there on Capitol Hill. That broadcast building, you know. And then, then where do they go? You know, they wanted to go to Florida or whatever. So now they're stuck in D.C. It's somebody else's problem. Ha ha. And people support that. I saw comments on that. Send them to Biden's house. You know, the Biden thing is a great example because the amount of ill will that they've sort of mustered for this man who was a senator for 36 years. He was a vice president for eight years. You didn't hear all this hatred for Biden in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2000 teens. But all of a sudden, he's the second coming from of Antichrist, you know, of the Antichrist for these white MAGA folks. How is this guy your enemy? This is a pro-law enforcement, pro-blue collar, you know, old Irish Catholic white guy. <laughs> you know, like this guy is not some crazy liberal, you know, thing that's foreign to you. You know, Biden is not AOC. Okay, he's practically, you know, he's a moderate. You know, he's somebody who did business and reached across the aisle his entire career. And now you're demonizing him. You have no reason to demonize him other than that's what you've been told to do because he bettered your God, the God of golden orange, you know, comb overs and diapers sitting down there in Mar-a-Lago, sitting around his pool, you know, with, with women with fake breasts hanging out of their bikinis and he's posing with his thumbs up sign. If you saw his little picture this weekend, you know, it was ridiculous. This is your man of piety. This is the guy that you think Jesus has sent to save America. Cause that's what they believe. It's become a religion, you know, and people want to be a part of something. That's a that's just a, a, a human characteristic. We all desire to be part of a community and have some purpose. And there was a lot of disenfranchised people in America that didn't have any real cultural identity because it had all been stripped from them. And they were handed a video game in response, you know, or the football package to watch a bunch of games and to watch commercials for pickup trucks and to watch Fox news and to get a flag that's made in China and hang it in front of your house. You know, you were handed this toxic masculinity. America's the greatest. Put your hand over your heart. We're fighting for freedom around the world. No, we're not. You know, we fought two wars that had nothing to do with terrorism for 20 years. We use that as an excuse but it didn't make us any safer. It made Halliburton a lot richer, made KBR a lot richer, made energy companies a lot richer, used a lot of oil and gas in Afghanistan for 20 years, didn't do them any favors, didn't stop shootings in this country, didn't make you richer, but it gave you some imagery, gave you a screaming eagle and a Punisher tattoo and a way to further divide people and a way to make this like sort of white Christian, you know, nationalist movement militarized 
right? That's why the cops all run around right now like they're going into Fallujah or something, right? Because all that excess military equipment was given back to municipalities for their police departments, which was a huge mistake. You don't need a tank in Little Rock, Arkansas, right? But that, that infusing of this toxic militarized mindset married with this nationalistic outlook was ripe for the taking for the right con man to come along and exploit it, you know? And Trump was that guy. He was unlikely to fill that role because he grew up, you know, a rich kid in a McMansion in Queens with his dad and his lawn with lawn jockeys on it, his KKK father and using the N-word openly up into his 70s, <laughs> you know, in his 60s. He would use the N-word all the time, you know, like he had Tourette's or something when you're on Celebrity Apprentice. Hey, they want me to pick the N-word, but he'd say the word and other people are like, what? You know, he was a sick man and everyone knew he was a sick man, but somehow, you know, Putin said, this is our guy. This is the dude we're going to make a lot of money off because we've primed the field. You know, we've fertilized and cultivated these people for 20 years. And now here's our guy. He's going to, he's going to take it home. And he did, you know, with the help of a pretty well-organized machine. That wasn't him, but was Jared, right? Jared was the guy who micro-targeted, you know, who had gone to Harvard, had buddies that were now in Palo Alto, called him up and said, how do I micro-target people on Facebook? You know, how do I find a guy in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania that voted for Obama, you know, but worked a blue-collar job, owned some guns, you know, posted about anti-union stuff once or twice, you know, how do I find these very specific psychological traits that I know I can flip from my father-in-law's election? And once he learned how to do that, he gave the information to Putin. And then Putin spammed these people with all kinds of psyops and propaganda, you know, that Hillary Clinton was a, you know, pedophile running a sex ring out of a pizza shop, you know, stuff that was so insane, you wouldn't think anybody, anybody would buy it. But when you have people that are already wounded, they're going to buy it, right? Because Putin had already done the research. He already knew that many of these women were probably victims of incest or sexual assault, that they would be open to the anger and the, and the motivation psychologically behind this guy who's now coming saying he's a champion and the other person is evil, you know? They're sticking their finger in psychological wounds for their own good. And there's nobody, you know, more equipped to do that than Jared Kushner, because that dude's a psycho. Okay. People ask me what he was like. You know, he was a psycho. He's got dead eyes. Slender man, right? He's kind of seemed like a serial killer type. And behind the scenes, Jared and Ivanka were running the show when I was around that, those guys. You know, Trump wanted music to play. When he walked in the room, he wanted to, hit, pardon me, he wanted to hit on women and he wanted to get high, right? He wanted to fill that psychological hole inside of himself as quickly as he could in the moment. That's who Trump is. You know, what, what are my needs right now? How do I feel superior right in this given moment? How do I feel better than the other guy? Because deep down, he knows he's not better, right? He knows he can't really read. He's been hiding that his whole life. He's dyslexic, probably. You know, his family thought it was shameful, so they didn't deal with it. It was easier to pay somebody to take his tests. It's kind of a dumbass anyway. <laughs> you know, so that's how the only way he's going to get in Wharton as it is. You know, they sent him to military school because he's behavioral problems, punching teachers and stuff. You know, so he knows he's a lie. His hair is a lie. His gut's a lie. His skin color is a lie. You know, his business is a lie. His wealth is a lie. And he knows that more than anybody else. You've never seen a smaller man than Trump up close because it's, it's just glaring his deficiencies and his psychological inadequacy. But his children know that and they know how to manipulate it. You know, that's why Ivanka slips into the little sibilant S, cooey, purry voice because she knows she'll get what she wants out of daddy if she uses that voice. And Jared you know, couldn't really stand any of them. 
in what I observed, you know, he, he left, they broke up, right? He was tired of it. Wasn't going to deal with it. You know, his family's from a little more money than the Trumps and a little more class though. I'm stretching it, you know, they're New Jersey, you know, Orthodox Jewish people with these guys who's hanging out with porn stars and stuff. So it wasn't exactly a natural fit, but I think Charles Kushner, you know, was like, hey, this is kind of your ticket, you know, to go bigger than I had before. And of course, we all know they broke up. Wendy Dang Murdoch took Ivanka on a holiday in the Mediterranean, like off of the coast of Turkey on a yacht and said, no, you need to get back together. Putin's ex-girlfriend told Ivanka that she needed to get back together with Jared. And then the next time I saw him, they were married. <laughs> okay. So that's a marriage of convenience. That's a marriage of opportunity. And Jared is the guy who was sort of implementing that plan, you know, and Jared couldn't get a top secret clearance when he came to the White House because his dad's a felon, went to prison. He's got this huge $2 million loan, you know, on triple six Fifth Avenue, a building he bought right before the crash in 2007, just overpaid. I think he paid 1.9 billion or something, right? And then the market collapses a couple of weeks later, you know, one of the worst business moves in the history of New York real estate. And that's saying something, right? So he's compromised. He's got a building underwater. You know, he's got foreign debt. He's got no experience in government. He's just a sketchy dude anyway, right? So what happens? He goes to the White House. They don't give him clearance. Trump overrides anybody. You know, he's the president. He's allowed to hand out clearance to anybody he wants. So he overrides the agencies, the intelligence agencies. Kushner gets access to these documents. The first foreign trip Trump makes is to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You know, as sketchy a nation as you'll have. But one that we have a lot of interest with. They give Trump an orb dance and a sword dance, and they hang a big banner on the side of the building with his face. So they got him because MBS hangs out with Putin. So he's got the same file and dossier on Trump. Here's how you manipulate him. Uh, the man's a fool, appeal to his ego, and he'll be putty in your hands. And that's what happened. We all saw Trump be clowning the U.S. on the world stage, doing this dance, looking like a freak. You know, it was embarrassing to watch that. And that was his first trip, right? Right before he started trashing NATO. But during that trip, and on a subse subsequent trip in October of that year, Jared Kushner sits up all night with MBS, talking business. And MBS wants to know, you know, who are the other sheikhs in my kingdom who have money and don't support me? Because the U.S. has that intelligence. And Kushner gives it to MBS and they sit up all night and he tells them who he can't trust. And what does MBS do? A couple of weeks later, calls them all together to the Ritz, you know, in, in Riyadh or wherever. Tortures a couple of them, tells, tells the rest of them like there's a new sheriff in town. Your money is my money now, right? So the U.S basically helps, you know, a brutal authoritarian retain power for its, for its own benefit, right? And we've done that in the past, you know, our, our history is littered with that sort of imperialism. But at the time, we would do it for the interests of America. This time, it's just a business transaction, right? It's got nothing to do with American safety, right? We, we, Trump approved this weapons sale to Saudi Arabia, you know, all these weapons that they ended up using, they're still using to this day in Yemen to kill innocent people, right? That's not something we would normally have done because of the humanitarian aspect of it. But Trump didn't think twice because he's doing business with these guys, right? And we all know what MBS did with Khashoggi, right? Murdered a United States journalist, you know, butchered him in an embassy in Turkey. There's no way Trump and Jared didn't know that was going down. They allowed him to do it for business. And what's the ultimate payoff? That's what we learned last week. That Jared got a $2 billion investment from MBS 
for Jared's new investment fund. Jared's not a hedge fund guy. He's not a stockbroker. He doesn't have any, any experience with in institutional wealth or investments. You'd be better off sending me your money than Jared Kushner. And you don't want to send me your money. Okay. That'd be like, I'm, I'm starting a dentist practice, a dental practice, you know, like you're going to put that kid in charge of billions of dollars. And the, the people in Saudi Arabia who are sort of the, the, you know, the board of directors for this sovereign wealth fund turned down the deal. They were like, no, we can't do this. You know, the agency fees were already like ridiculous. They were like, no, this guy's taking too big a piece of this stuff anyway, more than any other investment fund or hedge fund would, which shows you it's a grift. He's just trying to get paid and keep the money, right? So the board is like, no, we're not doing that. And MBS is like, screw you, we're doing it. And he overruled them. And Jared gets a fat check for $2 billion. And Trump gets a piece of that. You know, that's what that is. That's paying back, you know, for services rendered during the Trump administration. And that's a down payment on Trump getting reelected. That's Saudi Arabia betting, you know, that the Republicans come back into power in the midterms and in the next presidential election. That's a scary bet, because if they do, it's game over for democracy. And all these bad guys around the world know it. They just have to wait this cycle out. And the more money they give to these guys, the better off they'll be, the easier it'll be for Trump to keep fighting these lawsuits back, you know, and keep obfuscating the investigation into January 6th. And I think that's why they let Jared and Ivanka testify, because they know they're on the inside of this play, man. He's got this fund. He's got this untouchable FU money, they call it, right? You can't get at me. His name's not on documents. Jared's never going to get hauled, you know, before a judge. And he knows it. You know, that's a kid who failed up his entire life, as do the Trumps. They've never been held accountable. And if you think he finally is at 76 with all the fires that are raging around this country, you're putting too much faith in institutions that have failed you for too long. I'm not saying don't believe in it, but don't, don't keep buying the, hey, slow down. We got to take our times here, here and dot all our I's and cross all our T's. We're, we're past that, man. You know, the house is on fire. You need to pull out the hose and start squirting some water on it or it's going to be too late. You know, people don't like it when I say, you know, all the time, it's just a placeholder, but um, it's scary, you know, and that was just one of the revelations, the Jared Kushner thing. And it was out of the news cycle two days later, just like Don Jr., you know, the Friday before that story broke, gets busted for his text to Mark Meadows saying, we have operational control. Let's just call this thing from my father two days before the votes were even counted, two days after the election, before it had even been called, he's like, screw it, let's just say my dad won. That's insane that the son of a president would have sent a text like that. And he sat out on Twitter for three or four days. He was back by Tuesday morning because he knew there was no appetite for this stuff because there's just so much of it. People are overwhelmed. And MSM, you know, mainstream media doesn't really want to touch it. Well, they'll leave that for the podcasters and the sub stackers, right? They want to deal with the stuff that's easier to produce. It's easier to sort of manipulate people with, you know, not that they're evil. They're just running a business. It's entertainment. You know, these deep dives, people get sick of them, right? They had two years of that with Mueller and it, nothing came of it. So people don't like to follow the money anymore, you know, and they're betting on that. You know, they're knowing that all these institutions are working in their favor. Why do you think all these ex-Trump officials have books, right? They get book deals. They don't get punished. Bill Barr didn't face any consequences, you know, for being a consigliere to a criminal president for lying on his behalf. Bill Barr knew they were going to overturn the election, what they were going to try to do on January 6th. And his only response was to walk away. So he didn't have any criminal liability. He didn't warn anybody. 
He didn't try to save this country or this democracy that's been so good to a man like him who grew up in wealth, who went to Horace Mann, who went to Columbia, you know, who's part of Opus Dei, you know, has the protections of this weird secretive Catholic, you know, Illuminati type group that's pulling all these strings, you know? They're getting away with it. They're getting away with murder because there's money involved. And as I said, the Don Jr. story was out of the news cycle by Tuesday. The Jared story, you know, one of the greatest examples of corruption. And I'm mentioning both of these stories because these are sons and son-in-laws of a president. And all you hear is Hunter Biden on their side, right? They're not mentioning these stories on Fox News. And that's the other thing is that they know Fox isn't even going to run this stuff. So when a scandal hits the GOP, they know unless their followers happen to, you know, cruise past, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell on a 10 o'clock at night, you know, channel surfing safari, they're not even going to hear about this stuff because Murdoch is already protecting them and their interests in all of his media vehicles, as is the Sinclair group, you know, as are entire states in this country where every billboard is Jesus loves you. Abortion is wrong. Get a gun, you know? Right. So they know there's this whole cultural infrastructure designed to keep them ignorant and manipulated, feeding, you know, these corporate heads at the top, you know, these American oligarchs, these Koch brothers. Right. And that those guys have their own spoilers. They have Joe Mansions, you know, they have Kristen Cinemas. And I'll bet they got a few more in the pipeline we haven't even heard from yet that we're going to think are Democrats. And then they're going to get into office and they're going to vote against our interest because they got bought. Right. But those are two president's sons who did those scandals just this week. And you don't hear about them, but you're hearing about Hunter Biden all the time. And ABC's starting to report on it and CBS. Right. And a state's attorney in Delaware has a case looking into Hunter Biden. And I don't know much about that story. And apparently he did do business with a mayor in Moscow or there's some kind of transactions. I don't know much about it, but I know if they actually indict that guy, forget about it. It's all you're going to hear. And I know if that does come to pass, that Putin had a hand in all that, too, because it's not like Putin wouldn't have known that one of Biden's sons had a drug problem, which means he's vulnerable, right? You wouldn't get security clearance for something like that because you, you're easily manipulatable, right? So if somebody's addicted to drugs and you're flying some money in front of their face, they're going to make a bad decision. And then you have a scandal to use later, right? It's like hedging your bets against Biden. How do you think they knew about it in the first place? Giuliani and Lev Parnas and all these guys, why were they flying to Ukraine? Why was Trump asking Zelensky about Hunter Biden? Because they already knew. It was already a trap that was probably set up, you know, an insurance policy. If, if worse comes to worse, pull out that Hunter Biden story. You know, if Biden starts leading you in the polls, Putin's already done you a favor. He, he, he ensnared him into a bad business deal five years ago. You can hammer him with that. And that's what they're going to do, right? And people aren't going to look at all the steps behind it. They're just going to hear, oh, Dems are corrupt. Biden's corrupt. You know, and then it's going to be a Kamala Harris or somebody even more liberal and frightening to the white Christo, Christo nationalist base that's being dumbed down by the day, right? And it's going to be a no-brainer. You're going to have a Ron DeSantis or a Glenn Youngkin or a Trump himself running, and it's going to be dangerous. And media is not going to help you. Media is not going to do the deep dive. How did this Hunter thing start in the beginning, right? You know, I said a couple of weeks ago, they stole the recovery diary of Biden's daughter when she was living in a, you know, sober environment down in Florida during the pandemic. They basically stole her fourth step. It's a medical record, you know, to use it against her. They passed it around at a fundraiser that Don Jr. was at in Florida. So there's no scruples. There's no morals to these folks. They'll do anything to win, say anything to win. 
And the Democrats oftentimes get lost in infighting, right? We're all mad at each other. Some of us are mad at Garland. Some of us love Garden. Some of us have Garland. Some of us have podcasts that are pro-DOJ. Some of us criticize DOJ. We get lost in the fighting with each other because we're all so overwhelmed, right? We all have some form of PTSD from what we've been through in the last couple of years. And that's all part of this whole thing. You know, that's what the right is counting on. And we have to get very disciplined with our messaging. You know, it's not just about sending money and retweeting videos. You know, it's about getting very specific in how we address these claims. You know, Brian Schatz, Senator Brian Schatz from Hawaii, did a great floor speech a couple of weeks ago that went viral. You know, it was the same tone as one of my car rants, but more well-informed, right? And he was going after Josh Hawley, who voted against military aid for Ukraine, who voted, you know, to not impeach President Trump for trying to shake down Zelensky, right? A guy who raised his fist in a white power, you know, symbol, solidarity move. On January 6th, the morning of, you know, Josh Hawley was supporting it, right? So Schatz went after him, you know, in an eloquent, fiery speech that was no BS. And that's what we need. That's what we need more of. You got to fight fire with fire, you know. I'm all for it when they go low, we go high. And I love Michelle Obama. She's brilliant. You know, but this isn't the time for that. You need to be willing to jump down in the mud, you know, and start throwing some of it back. And it doesn't have to be lies or myths truths. It has to be the truth because the truth is on our side. The facts are on our side. You know, somebody like Jared Kushner held back PPP from blue states so he could have political leverage over folks that weren't going to vote for his father, including New York and New Jersey, two states that made that man who he was, that allowed his family to prosper after they escaped the Holocaust. And then he turns his back on them and allows people to die for political expediency and greed and goes unpunished. You know, that's the sin of our times is somehow thinking wealthy white people don't have to be held accountable for crimes. In the early 90s, nobody was like, slow your roll when they started locking up young black men, right? Three strikes and you're out. Nobody was questioning that. Nobody was saying, hey, we got to take our time, make sure we get it right. They said, build more prisons and lock them up, right? But now, now Elon Musk can try to buy Twitter and manipulate stock markets so he can sell Bitcoin, you know, or Dogecoin, whatever the hell it is. The guy's a Bond villain, right? But he's allowed to do this stuff. He's punking everybody, you know, spent $3 billion buying into Twitter, wants to buy the whole thing as broke on Friday. Why? Because some kid has a site where he tracks his private jet movements and Elon doesn't like it. You know, think about Elon Musk. That guy could wake up any day of the week, pick a major problem in the world and solve it by lunchtime. He could literally wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to end childhood poverty this morning. And he could do it and still be the richest man in the world. He could do that, smoke a joint, spend the rest of the day looking at porn and still accomplish more than any other human on that day. <laughs> right? And you couldn't say boo to him because you're like, all right, bro, you did it. But he doesn't do stuff like that. It's all about the self. It's all about punking people and, and sharing Hitler memes, you know, and being pro-Canadian trucker because he's a chaos agent, right? And ultimately, he doesn't want to be regulated. He doesn't want to pay taxes. He wants to do whatever he wants to do to make his own ego bigger. And somehow people worship these guys now, right? Jeff Bezos, Bezos, whatever, you know? Elon Musk. Elon Musk has a, a, an army of followers online. Guys sitting in their basements playing Xbox think they're going to be the next billionaire off of Dogecoin. No, you're going to get screwed. You know, it's like buying a lottery ticket. You might fantasize about winning, but odds are you ain't going to win. 
you know, but the house is going to win, you know, and Elon wants to be the house. So do the other billionaires. That's what this is about. And controlling something like Twitter would be an awful precedent, as we all know. And, you know, that's why everybody freaked out. Twitter adopted this poison pill, you know, diluting the shares to prevent it. But come on. This is a weaponized situation right here. You control the media and the messaging. It's scary. And there's no accident that that happened at the same time that Trump's truth social failed. Okay. This stuff isn't by coincidence. This is all gearing up for the midterms and the next election. You know, and that's what, that's what we got to, we got to tune in on, you know, with laser focus, because there's going to be a lot of distractions. You know, we saw Tucker Carlson's video came out this week and I'm doing this on Monday, by the way, I usually record it before, but so if you're hearing this, I just recorded it. (laughs) And uh, so we saw the video, right? Tucker's homoerotic video. You know, what is that about? It's easy to make jokes about it and stuff. And I certainly made mine, but it's a distraction. It's outrageousness to suck the air out of the room and make you look over here when somebody's stuffing their pockets over there. You know, I always told people that's what Trump was. Trump was the kind of guy who walks into a store, flops down on the floor and pretends to have an epileptic epileptic seizure, right? So everybody rushes over to him and talks about why is there foam coming out of his mouth? And, you know, you're looking at this situation while the other ones are sneaking behind the counter and emptying the cash register, right? That's what Jared was. That's what Ivanka was, you know? That's what Wilbur Ross and Steven Mnuchin And Mnuchin got a billion dollars from Saudi Arabia. And another perfect example of we become numb to it, right? Normally, that alone would be a scandal that the Treasury Secretary now got a billion dollar payout from a foreign government, (laughs) you know, three months after leaving office or a year and three months after leaving office, right? But it's barely a scandal because there's just so much of it. And we become tired. And we also have our own issues to deal with. We're living this life that's hard, man. Year three of a pandemic. Now, some people think it exists. Some people think it doesn't. You know, it's still out there. Scary stuff, man. You know, but hey, we get to be alive. We get to show up. We get to help other people, you know, and that should be our North Star. Every day we wake up is an opportunity. The birds are still singing. You know, the bombs aren't dropping on us. They are dropping on other people and they shouldn't be. And much of our efforts need to be towards making sure this never happens again and stopping it as soon as we can, whatever that takes. We can't become blind and numb to human suffering. And I know none of us are, but it's scary, you know, but you can still wake up, you know, it's spring. The leaves are coming on the trees. The birds are out. The flowers will be out. It's going to snow here today, actually. And it snowed yesterday on Easter, which made me think of the Prince song, right? Sometimes it snows in April. I think that was the song. It's it's cold. It's like in the 30s at night still. It's weird. And that's climate change, right? That's a whole nother thing that's bearing down on us that we can't focus on with the proper intent because we're dealing with all these other fires. And again, that is not by accident. You know, the guys behind the scenes, the men in the shadows, the Koch brothers, you know, the industrialists don't want you paying attention to climate change. And that's why people are being cultivated to be defiant with mask mandates and vaccine mandates, because when it comes time to, you know, conserve fuel, which we should already be doing, they want people to rise up and say, hell no, I'm still driving my pickup truck. I'm an American. Right. They want this defiance in opposition to the public good and public health, because public health is bad for the bottom line if you own an oil company. So it's all related. And now the machine has become so big that it's hard to tell, you know, what is what, and it's overwhelming. But we stay strong and you'll get through it. It's like rapids, you know, it's like we're all in a kayak going down a river trying to avoid these class five rapids and none of us have been down this river before, you know, and there's obstacles we haven't even thought of. 
and whirlpools and stuff, you know, and there's a lot of people, you know, wishing our boat flips over and capsizes and they're not going to throw us a lifeline. You know, that's where we're at. It's why you don't divide a people, but you can wake up, you know, you can do good. You know, this pandemic made it impossible for me to see my grandparents basically for the last two years going into year three. And I was finally able to get up there on Friday. I got to see my grandma, you know, and I went up. It was one of those kind of God moments because I went up to Troy, New York to hear a concert, to hear uh, Gordon Lightfoot, who I got to work with when he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and is, you know, one of the few songwriters that Bob Dylan himself, you know, just respects like crazy. Just, an, a, you know, an amazing writer and uh performer who's now 83 and has you know long history of health issues like he had to use oxygen to get through his encore but he still killed it and it was a packed house and stuff and uh so i went up to see this concert i hadn't seen my grandma who's now sadly been moved into hospice care and she's comfortable but she's you know sort of rapidly kind of deteriorating and i decided to go see her and and figured out the logistics of that, you know, you have to take a COVID test and, and whatever, but, you know, I called my, my step-grandfather Vince and, you know, and, and said, like, I want to go see grandma this morning. And, uh, it turns out the, 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 I don't want to say old folks home, you know, the, the medical center, whatever you call them, it was a mile from my hotel right a mile from my hotel and i got to go in and see my grandma who raised me when i was in junior high and high school you know one of the most loving people i've ever met in my life and i'll talk more about her on another show but an amazing woman you know mar marched with dr king opened homeless shelters in the 80s battled george pataki up here in westchester to open a shelter because everybody was trying to pretend like the problem didn't exist you know and she got catholic charities to fund you know, a homeless shelter. When she retired, she worked in investments and stuff. But when she retired, she uh, built a bunch of schools in Haiti and Wells and, you know, really developed some deep bonds with a lot of Haitians and they'd come visit and holidays and stuff, you know. And I don't mean like she wasn't like an, you know, evangelical down there, like she was just doing logistical work, you know. And, and a lifelong, very religious Catholic. And um, I got to see her, you know, I got to tell her how much I loved her and how much she meant to me. And she's in this sort of dementia fog, but through that, she said she loved me too. And then she said one of the most profound things I've ever heard. She said, I have loved every day of my life. What more do you want? You know, what more could you want to say at 93 years that I've loved every day of my life? to look back and realize that every 24 hours is a gift, you know, that we get to do something about. It's an opportunity. It's a blessing. And no matter how overwhelming things are, and they are right now, we're here, you know, we're on this side of it, you know, and that's a good deal, no matter how tough it is. So we got to remember that. So it was a blessing to go and see her and, uh, you know, that's another thing we've lost, you know, the mismanaging of this pandemic. There's a lot of folks sitting in a lot of places that didn't get to say goodbye, you know, and that's heartbreaking. And, and that's another, you know, that's another charge against the criminal enterprise that that bungled this thing in my mind. But um, I'm, I'm happy I got to got to do that. So, you know, and I wasn't expecting that. I was just open to the sort of intuition and, and look where I am. Oh my God, I'm close. Let me go visit. So you never know. And intuition is the thing to follow. You know, I opened the show with this bazooki, right? So bazooki is a Greek instrument. It's popular in sort of Irish folk music as well. They have something called an Irish bazooki. This is a Greek bazooki that I just played. And uh, when I did my first tour, you know, my first European tour was with Jackson Brown. We went to Europe and the UK and I'm this road manager. This is probably 12 years ago. And David Lindley, who's Jackson's longtime, you know, partner, kind of guitar player, was also opening the show with an acoustic set. 
And David's one of my favorite musicians ever. He's like Jerry Garcia to me. And uh, he can play anything. So he plays the ouds, you know, and he plays the bazooki and he plays acoustic guitar and, you know, fiddle. It doesn't matter. You know, it's got strings on it. That dude can play it. And he's doing this like Steve Earle songs on the bazooki. It's part of this opening act, and you know, and Springsteen lyrics and stuff. And I was really into the twang of the bazooki, though I'd never played one. So we're, <clears throat> we're about midway through the tour. We did Glastonbury. Jackson played the main pyramid stage on a Saturday, right after uh, Jack White and right before Shakira. <laughs> and I think the Scissor Sisters or somebody. And uh, the, there, then there's a Jackson Brown concert, right? And then they did an acoustic set. And then we went back to Bristol and had a day off in Bristol, England. And I'd been there at the beginning of the tour and my hotel room sort of looked beyond the harbor up onto this hill where there was this castle. So I was back there for a day off and I'm like, I got to get to that castle, man. Like, I got to go see what that's about. So I leave my hotel room and I start walking up the road in that direction. And I see there's a music store called Hobgoblin Music. And I look in and there's all these like Celtic acoustic instruments and harps and just real funky stuff, my kind of thing, right? So I go in there. And my eyes are drawn to this bazooki that's hanging on the wall. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's a bazooki, you know, like, like David Lindley plays. And I take it down. I start playing it. And I can instantly play this thing. Like, I don't know why, but it's as if, like, you know, I would played it in another life or something. You know, everything that I want in an instrument, this thing is instantly giving me, you know, which is just something to, like, use as a barometer for my internal emotion. You know, I play like Lightning Hopkins says, air music. You know, I'm just playing it to get the emotions out of me that build up, you know, it's not for any other purpose. It's almost like therapeutic. So I'm playing this thing. Right, I'm playing it instantly. And I'm like, this is great, you know? So I buy the thing. I keep walking up the hill. I sit down on a bench. I pull it out. I'm playing. There's a couple sitting in the grass. They look like they're on their first date. I'm playing this music. They start making out. You know, At the end of it, they come up to me and they're like, hey, man, thanks for the music. It's our first date. And it was such a beautiful soundtrack. And I'm like, oh, my God, this instrument's already paid for itself, right? It's already brought somebody joy. Like, this is amazing, you know? So I end up going back down to the hotel. I'm carrying the thing. I got it in a case. And I walk into the lobby, and I see Mark Goldenberg, a great guitar player who's in Jackson's, you know, band. And he goes, hey, Noel, what is that? You know, what are you carrying? And I'm like, ah, oh, it's a bazooki. And he goes, were you in Hobgoblin music? And I was like, yep. He goes, I was in there this morning with David Lindley. He was going to buy that thing. He put it in his own tuning. So that was the reason I was able to pick it up and play it because it's normally in a tuning I wouldn't be familiar with. But instantly it sort of worked, you know, it fit me. And uh, that's amazing. That's an amazing coincidence that isn't a coincidence, you know, and I apologize to David. I was like, oh, I snaked it from you. And he goes, no worries, you know, I'm glad you have it. And then he uh, gave me some lessons and stuff. And later on that tour, Jackson invited me at Soundcheck to get on and play it. And Ravi Shankar was sitting in the audience. It was at Humphreys in San Diego. And I freaked out <laughs> and I didn't do it. They were like, go get your bazooka off the bus. And I was like, no, <laughs> like I'm not going out there and playing in front of Ravi Shankar. But um, I did get to play it in a club in London with, uh, with another musician, kind of a well-known guy. And Jackson came to that gig. So, you know, it's given me a lot of joy and pleasure, and I figured I'd pull it out for the Easter show. So that's the bazooki story. There's a lot of twang, you know, double choruses, two strings that are, you know, tuned in concert with each other or in like fifths. So you get all this kind of overtones, like a 12 string guitar. It, it works. So anyway, that's my podcast for the week. I'm going to be on stage soon. June 7th and 8th, I'm going to be at City Winery, New York City on Tuesday, the 7th. And then on Wednesday, the 8th of June, I'm going to be at City Winery, Philadelphia 
And then I'm going to be in Cape Cod this summer, August 3rd at the Music Room, which is a great music venue there in Cape Cod, West Yarmouth. So come on out. Three chances to see me. It's a lot of fun. You know, there's the political stuff and the jokes, but I tell a lot of stories from life on the road and a lot of the, you know, kind of podcast stuff. It's a good time. So come on out. Jason and Damon bought T-shirts this week. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the support. If you want a T-shirt, they're at noelcastler.com. And otherwise, take care of yourselves. You know, it was a holiday weekend. Hope you got to recharge. Hope you're ready for the week ahead. God knows what we're in for, but we're going to get through it together. Peace and love. And I'll talk to you next week, folks. Bye.